Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, and she's going to talk to me about her fabulous new book, The Dark Fantastic, Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. This is uh, published by NYU, New York University Press in 2019, and it's part of a really robust series that they have on popular culture, um, all varieties of popular culture. Uh, but I'm going to let um, Ebony tell us a little bit about that as well. First, I'd like to welcome Ebony Elizabeth Thomas to our podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this really interesting project. Hi, Ebony. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I am associate professor in the Literacy, Culture, and International Education Division at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. I began my career as a teacher in the Detroit Public Schools. I've also taught in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I am from Detroit, and I attended Detroit Public Schools. Um I first became very interested in children's literature as a young child. Uh, I read fairly early, and we were part of the last generation to grow up entirely before the internet, so I'm at the tail end of Generation X, and so there wasn't a whole lot to do <laughs> um, if you you know, didn't have um, video games. Um, television channels were more limited um, back then, so I always joke with my students, there were five channels until I was 12 um, when um, Bard and Cablevision came to Detroit, so um much of my free time was spent reading. And so as an early reader and someone who was immersing in novels by the time I was at the end of my primary years, books really shaped my imagination. Um, I thought I would get away from children's books when I was an undergrad. And then two events happened to pull me back in and never let me go. The first was... um, I believe the Disney Channel re-aired the Anne of Green Gables Sullivan Entertainment special out of the CBC when I was a junior in undergrad. That was a quite monumental year. Um, First real love. uh, First real heartbreak in mourning was my father dying suddenly at the end of my junior year. So I came home from college for the summer and two days later he passed away of a heart attack. And so, you know, certain life events seal um, things that you are doing at the time in, in your consciousness and, um, you know, form habits. And so I had begun rereading the Anne of Green Gables series. And so I logged on the internet, that was 1998. And um, I had already been chatting with people who are really into the Anne of Green Gables series. And so I wanted to read more. So I ended up reading all of Lucy Monga, um goodness, I began reading all of Lucy Maud Montgomery's books. Um, I've read all of her work except for the journals. And then about a year later, um, a British author um, 
began to um, have a lot of buzz around this new fantasy series that she had been writing, Harry Potter. And one of my fifth grade students in Detroit left a copy of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets on uh, my uh, doorstep in front of my classroom. And um, I always joke with friends um, that perhaps um, I will need a time machine in the future to place that copy of Harry Potter (laughs) right there um, at the verge of my classroom because none of the children ever owned up to it. And I never could figure out who, um, you know, might have been given that book by a parent and just um, really wasn't very interested. And so whimsically, I thought about that as the beginning of this fantastic 20-year journey that I've been on. That's a fascinating, both of those are really interesting stories about how ideas and narratives get embedded um, in our thinking and, and shape, as you say, our imagination. Um, and I love the story about this person leaving you a copy of Harry Potter <laughs> side of your classroom. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the sort of the broad conceptual understanding of this book, The Dark Fantastic, the title, and then also the terminology that you use in it. As we're talking about sort of children's literature or children, young adult, um, imaginary, imaginative literature, um, but not specifically only written page, as you talk about it, it's throughout Um, sort of media at this point as well. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the idea, the dark fantastic, and how this is distinct from other conceptions like speculative speculative fiction? Yes, absolutely. Um, I did a really careful job trying to draw distinctions between and among conceptualizations of Black people and or characters in the speculative, just because I noticed that during the 2010s, everything got lumped together under this umbrella term of Afrofuturism. And I had questions about that. That would be like calling Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings um, science fiction. And in some ways, perhaps it is, but I really like to be precise with um, language. And so what I saw, not only creators of color or, you know, specifically black creators, but also um, creators from the majority who were writing black characters and other um, racialized characters were doing was, you know, they were doing very distinctive things. um, And, there seemed to be little distinction among what was happening. So there were people who were writing multicultural fantasy where they were using non-Western cultures, uh, whether amalgamated, um, you know, like, you know, pan-African culture, Asian culture, Pacifica culture. Um, And they were sort of borrowing from, um, you know, smaller cultures in order to form a world or they were delving deeply into one specific culture like children of blood and bone does, or um, there were people who were attempting to diversify um, speculative narrative across uh, category and genre. So, you know, maybe we want to add a character of color 
or two to our teen show about witches. But they weren't really, there, there was no real diversity agenda. It was just, okay, well, you know, America is now multicultural, so let's make sure that the cast is not all white. It's the 21st century. So I feel as if those are very different aims and audiences. Um, the Dark Fantastic is not a genre per se. I I distinguished it from multicultural fantasy and science fiction, which I describe in the book. Um, I describe Afrofuturism as both... Um, an aesthetic and a trend and an activist movement. So both implies two, but that's three things. Um, There's also the black fantastic, which has been theorized and uh, worked on by people who are, um, you know, who were working long before I was. And then there is Claudia Rankine's um, notion of the racial imaginary. So these are all very distinctive things. So I really wanted to do a good, um, I really wanted to look at specifically how are black characters being racialized in mainstream, big budget, fantasy, science fiction, and other, you know, uh, you know, other stories that were going from page to screen, because we saw that as a trend in the early 2000s. So I really think my book is examining a, uh, a trope or a trend and um, in speculative fiction of the early 21st century. So it's a very specific theorization rooted in centuries of how we think about race in the collective imagination. And, and I wanted to follow up with um, the question that you sort of pose at the beginning of the book. And, and you sort of, you start out by talking about um, your interaction with the idea of magic from your youngest days. Um, But you pose the question as to why are magical stories written for some people and not for others? And how does your theorizing about the dark fantastic um, along with many of these other um, sort of genres and contexts, as well as sort of theories, how does it fit within that broader question? Um, why are magical stories important? And again, why are they written to some degree for particular audiences or readers? That's a really good question. Um one of the things that I've thought about in the three years since finishing the bulk of the work on the book, um, <laughs> as your listeners know, academic books take a long time. <laughs> and they do, yes. <laughs> um, you know, so that was, um, I filed the book with New York University Press, um, the first draft, which was, um, second draft, actually, which was accepted, um, the week in 2016 before the election. So it was the first week of November in 2016. And The Dark Fantastic was published in a very different world almost three years later. So I want to press that by saying that, you know, my discussion of magic would have been much more broad if I were writing that book or turning it in now. 
as opposed to three years ago. Here's why. When I talk about magic, I'm really referring only to sort of um, the kind of magic that has appeared in Western, no, really English language, fantasy and fairy tales produced for children, primarily in the U.S. and U.K., and uh, you know, because of our cultural imperialism sent all over the world. And since then, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are doing all kinds of wonderful work in scholarship in the arts who have pointed out rightly that the, you know, yes, that's a very specific kind of magic that we are, um, that our culture here in the United States positions kids to look for. But, you know, it's, I have no discussion of non-Western magic because, again, given my generation and uh, when I came through, very little of that tradition was in mainstream published books for children. And it was almost completely absent from the big screen, you know, film and the small screen television, except for caricature. So non-Western magic was it was a scary kind of magic. So it showed up in, you know, um, non-white people's doing things to, you know, like um, mysterious ritualistic practices or, you know, dark magic or voodoo, you know, which is completely misunderstood um, in our context. So um, I do have to issue that rather long disclaimer that's fine. <laughs> right. But I was so I was looking for sort of the the Disneyfied <laughs> children's children's books of the 20th century and really the 19th and 20th century um, promoted magic. So that kind of magic, you know, sort of the classic Disney fairy tale. And I did not see myself represented. And so I began to notice as a teacher, as a fangirl, as someone who is interested in creating stories for children and teens myself, that, wow, Black characters are really constrained and are only found in a few different kinds of stock roles, unless the person writing it is, a you know, either a person of color, generally a black person, or a really woke white person with, you know, activist roots, or there's a story behind that. Otherwise, you know, we only exist in about five or six different stock roles. And I joke with audiences. Um, I was on the road with the Dark Fantastic this summer. And I joke <laughs> with audiences that my next book is going to have a chapter titled, The Five Characters You Meet the five black characters you meet in children's and young adult literature. And I have people rolling by the end because we all know it. And you probably know it listeners. And Lily, I'm sure you know, it. like exactly. These <laughs> existed. And so out of my frustration um, with those roles and with sort of this pattern, I began noticing um, I sat down at the beginning of the decade and I started um, working on what would become the dark fantastic. And, and so in that, in that context, in terms of this idea of where these characters are or are not um, in not only written literature, but also again, as you talk about the translation to screen um, and, and fan dominion, um, but also you talk about, the imagination gap, um, which I found to be a really fascinating term. And I think one that's super important. 
Um, and I'd love for you to sort of discuss it a little bit because I think it follows from, you know, sort of what you said. You said you sat down and started to trace out um, what you were seeing and not seeing um, in terms of not only the characters, but how they operate in a narrative. Can you talk a little bit about why there is an imagination gap and what that is? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a really good question because um, I remember when I was first, when I first realized that I said, wait a minute, we're asking all the wrong questions here. You know, when we talk about diverse books for children and teens, because, um, you know, we were demanding things of creators who had no context for the creations that we wanted to see. So that meant that, you know, by saying that, I mean that, you know, you want create, we want creators of these stories to cast not only black characters, but characters who aren't, um, you know, white, cisgender, uh, mainly heterosexual um, boys, more boys than girls. Um, you know, we want them to take anybody who is not, you know, um, in a position of societal privilege um, and put them in a place of transcendence in a narrative. And we want people to read it and identify with that character. That's a super tall order. And so I realized when, um, you know, beginning the dark fantastic that, you know, um, and again, this was the early 2000, uh, the early 2010s. And we were, we had just finished a decade of um, no child left behind in K-12 schools in the United States, which um, really focused on raising the test scores of underrepresented minorities, so URM, so um, Black, Latinx, and Native kids and teens. We wanted to raise their uh, test scores. And so the education was obsessed with the achievement gap at the time. So how come these kids, you know, have lower uh, attainment on literacy assessments? And, you know, there was a lot of obsession over that. And then so I had that discourse in one ear as um, someone finishing up a doctorate in education. And then in my other ear, I was talking with friends and colleagues about the lack of diversity, the persistent lack of diversity in all stories for children and teens. And then when we did get diverse stories, they were meant to teach the kids something wasn't really, you know, flights of fancy or imagine, um, imagination. And I realized, oh my gosh, so the two are related. We have a gap, you know, it's not just about an achievement gap that casts kids of color in a position of deficit. So that means that you're not able to close the gap or leap across and, you know, um, become proficient on literacy tests. But what we don't examine is that corresponding gap in literature, media, curriculum, and all of narrative that kids are presented with from their earliest, earliest moments of, of consciousness, even before they can read independently. So if the landscape of the books and stories that you have um, and you've encountered from birth to age 18 really decenters you and really makes you beside the point. Or if you are that child who's placed at the center, makes you the center of most stories, it is incredibly difficult to imagine the world being any other way. Moreover, it's not only difficult for you to imagine the world to be different, 
if you read a story or you view a story and someone who shouldn't be at the center or who you have never seen at the center is suddenly centered, if their perspective, not just seeing the person and their body, but, the, you know, um, we think about focalization in narrative theory, right? So we're thinking about how is who is telling the story? How is it being told through you know their perspective? How do we see what they see? If suddenly the gaze changes and you are seeing that story through someone else's eyes who would have been on the margins of most stories, I think that creates a profound amount of dissonance for readers and viewers and audiences. And even before, um, you know, the story is published or, you know, the film or television show premieres, we're asking creators to imagine a world that does not exist yet, has never existed. And so there is a huge disconnect there. I think that disconnect can be um, perhaps described as an, an imagination gap. And I, I mean, I think that your discussion of that is really profound because, again, it's, you know, uh, I am white. And I, again, I see the the presentation of so many narratives from a white perspective. Um, and then I get frustrated because they're often male perspectives. As you note, if the if the perspective is shifted even a bit in a direction that is not the sort of majority perspective, then it changes the whole conceptualization of the imagined space. Um, And I think your discussion of the imagination gap in context also of, as you say, sort of some of these other gaps that were being the focus of so much policy that it, it, it also underlines, you know, perhaps, as you say, that there may be connections between these various gaps um, that we often are told to focus upon. Um, but I wanted to take you through a couple of your other sort of framing contexts. Um, and specifically, you talk about the cycle of the dark other. Um, and this is also how you then start to analyze particular popular culture artifacts. Um, So if you could explain a little bit about that cycle, and then we can talk about some of the examples that you provide through the rest of the text, that would be great. Sure. Um, So um, I I have a chapter in the book titled Toward a Theory of the Dark Fantastic, because for years, I just wasn't sure if what I was seeing was real because I said, you know, no, surely in these very popular stories, the black girl doesn't always die. You know, I don't know. I mean, I grew up, you know, I'm born and raised in the United States. Um, I am, you know, um, all, um, you know, all sides of my family are um, descended from enslaved um, Africans and so, you know, I've been here, but I think I, I'm such an incorrigible, um, goodness, I'm such an incorrigible optimist that I just knew, no, no, if I, in the speculative or, you know, the dark fantastic, in the fantastic or the speculative, the black girl doesn't always die. And I kept looking at text after text after text. It's not an empirical study. And, you know, a couple of reviewers have said, oh, but what about this obscure text? Um, I got out of that by saying, you know, yeah, but how influential is obscure text X when we haven't even gotten a big screen 
um, adaptation or a television show um, from Octavia Butler yet. Hopefully that'll come in the 2020s. But, you know, so very few people are reading, um, you know, uh, uh, um, Octavia Butler in K-12 during their formative years. Some, you know, some children will find her in high school. I've certainly taught her, but the very first imaginative stories we have. And then when you're going through adolescence and you're reading, um, you know, YA novels or you're watching the CW or ABC family, what happens to the black characters on those shows? And I realized a couple of things pretty quickly about not only the fiction, but also um, the visuals that we were giving um, young people, tweens and teens. First, there are almost no boys, no non-binary characters. Um, you know, of course, uh, before the 2010s, very few um, queer characters who were out. So there were a lot of different um, <laughs> kinds of diversity, um, intra-ethnic and intra-racial diversities that were completely missing from the narrative. Like, those people, they just weren't there. And so most often you would have um, a single black girl character um, on screen. She would usually be played by a mixed race um, actress or, or a fair skinned actress um, of African descent. So rarely someone who is darker than a paper bag. Certainly I'm probably the darkest, um, you know, I'm medium, light, medium brown. I'm the darkest of the characters that would appear on one of those shows during the first 20 years of the 21st century. And she always died. Either she died somewhere, you know, in the show or, you know, in the film or in the book. Um, And, you know, either it was an actual physical death or it was a social death. And more often it was a physical death. Like they just, she got, she died and she was killed. But in the cases where I thought I had disproved my own theory, where I'm, you know, I'm still not sure. People think, oh, I critiqued your book. It didn't have all this. You know, I'm faculty. As a professor, yes, I love the the the, the research, the, the research process. So if you find some holes and that's just, you know, more fodder for another study and another grant, like I maybe can go and, you know, find other sources of media. But I just really became more and more anxious about this when I realized I said, no, no, if I'm a young black girl growing up, you know, in the generation after mine, I'm really consuming a whole lot of black death, not just on the daily news or via social media with viral videos of black folks getting shot by, you know, the state or by law enforcement. I'm also consuming black death via places where kids go to escape it, which is the speculative. You know, it's not realistic fiction. Anything can happen in these um, fantasy or futuristic worlds. And yet <laughs> we reenact this drama of unending black death, even in these stories that are purported to give us escape. So that was where I came up with the dark fantastic. And I proposed a five stage cycle and, you know, I'm an English major. I didn't put a diagram in the book. You know, I thought I would put a diagram <laughs> in and then I thought, oh my goodness, no, because half, you know, it's my tenure book and um, I put it in my tenure file and I, I just, some of my colleagues actually do, you know, social science, um, you know, quote unquote, rigorous research, quantitative, and they would have, yeah, I just thought, let me stay in my lane. So I didn't, <laughs> I just described it in words. So here are the, quickly, here are the five stages of the dark fantastic cycle. Um, first is spectacle. So the black girl appears on the page 
or on screen and you know we're like whoa that's a black person no really we do we go oh that's a black person <laughs> sometimes <we're, laughs> right? and so and even sometimes depending on who they are you know i know the 2010s is the woke era i don't know how you know genuine sometimes people are being because sometimes even black people will be will be watching something and they were like oh my goodness and you know probably our you know spectacle reaction is a little different than others but we're like yay there's a black person there you know <laughs> so everybody notices it it's Especially in the speculative, like, yeah, there's a black captain. Oh my gosh, the princess is black, you know? And so that was stage one. But the spectacle creates hesitation. I lean a lot on Todorov, another point of contention for people who are looking more at fantasy beyond the Western. Here's how I think I still get away with it, though, because even though we're POC or people of color, we still have been raised and um, formed and our imaginations have been shaped in the West, at least, you know, the people um, and the, you know, the reader responses I'm talking about in the dark fantastic. So while it would be ideal to consider um, other fantasy traditions, the fact remains that, and I'm sorry, this just can't be disputed because I just know children's literature very well. Most of us do not encounter um, diverse authors and creators of speculative um, narratives or fictions until we are at least teenagers because the stories just don't get circulated beyond, you know, if they're independent creators. So yeah, I think it's still valid to build the theorization from Todorov. So Todorov was a a structuralist who wrote a book called um, The Fantastic the structure of a literary genre. And it was perfect because I was in part raised by a structuralist. My dissertation co-chair um, is Mary Schlepergrill at the University of Michigan, who does um, systemic functional linguistics. And anyway, um, so structuralism is something I was immersed in as a doctoral student. So just thinking about the nuts and bolts of fantasy and science fiction and what Todorov calls the fantastic. And he really goes on and on at one point in the volume about hesitation, how the moment of hesitation where you're breaking that, that break that signals to the reader or viewer that you are not in the world we know. This is not a, um, an imitation of real life. This is a world beyond. It's a world with magic. It's a world set in the far future. It's a world in the, you know, in a magical past. So, that moment of hesitation is the spirit in the heart of the fantastic when we know that something's a right. Sometimes people throw you or people, authors or screenwriters will throw you right in. And the moment of hesitation happens when you first open the book or when you first begin viewing the film or television show. Um, but very often there's a portal where, you know, you think you're in the real world and then something happens. And alongside the protagonist, things become more and more uncanny. So I put two and two together and decided, well, a moment of hesitation is when somebody black shows up where they're not supposed to, where we're not supposed to be or where the West in the West, we're not seen as, you know, uh, belonging to that space. So, you know, thinking about Brent Staples classic essay, you know, a black man um, in public space, I believe that's not the name of it. I think the whimsical title is Walk On By. So that same thing happens. That same thing happens when we're watching um, fantasy. So, but the hesitation has to be resolved. We also read that in Todorov's theory, which I picked back up from the 70s. So, you know, 
you you like, whoa, there's a black person. Oh my gosh, that makes me hesitate. I can't reconcile the fantasy world with the presence of this black person. And it's resolved in the fantastic, the way that it is in the real world. And that is through violence. And usually it's just, it's, I can't even say it's symbolic violence. Usually these girls go through some very violent things in ways that are mirrored in the desert of the real. Um, And then finally, um, the fourth stage is haunting. And I get that completely from Toni Morrison. And I'm so glad that people are reading Toni Morrison's theory because she gets so many accolades as a novelist. I wish I had read Playing in the Dark when I was an undergrad. And I didn't get to it until I was a professor at Penn, an assistant professor here. And I mean, it's just so important, such an important book where she talks about how the Africanist presence haunts all of U.S. literature. And I mean, no one's refuted that yet. So it's one of several presences that I would argue haunt our national consciousness, you know, um, indigeneity and, you know, the fact that this is a settler colony is a huge um, even more under theorized and understudied thing, but you know, this is a former slave holding state or slaving nation, and um, that matters. And so, you know, you want to get rid of the black presence, but the black presence is always there. And so, she haunts that black girl haunts those narratives for for uh, older children and teens that are speculative. So that's the theory. Oh, and so- yeah, sorry. So that's the the dark other cycle that you note as something that, or the way that you are thinking about the characters, as you say, and also the way that they operate within the narrative. So it's not only the representation, but also the way that they are they are sort of posed and and what they're what what happens to them. Um, and and so you go through uh, four, as I would say in political science, case studies, um, <laughs> and 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 essentially four characters, um, and and I'd love to just take you through them a little bit to talk about why these four um, from the Hunger Games, from Merlin, from Vampire Diaries, and from Harry Potter, um, and how the characters that you. Um, are sort of writing about are within this cycle and what they're also telling us about essentially this idea of the dark fantastic. So if you wanted to start with Rue and the Hunger Games, that would be fabulous. Absolutely. Rue was the heart of this book. She was the heart and soul of this book. And that's why I said I'm beyond fortunate to have Paul Lewin's incredible artwork as my, um, cover for the book because Rue truly was the mocking Jay of the Hunger Game Hunger Game series. And um, it took me quite a long time to write that chapter. Um, I was actively writing it for about a year and thinking about it for another year. You know how when you're writing a book, um, I think, you know, um, particularly humanities criticism, sometimes the book comes when it comes. And For her, it just does. You know, you're under the gun for institutional um, promotions. But, you know, that I mean, I really spent a lot of time thinking about Rue as if she were a real little girl and putting her at the center of the Hunger Games narrative, which I had as a reader, really focused on um, Katniss through my initial journey. I was happy to see that there was a little Black girl. I was heartbroken when she died. Um, had not yet 
um, examine my reactions to, you know, black girl always dying. But um, when I went back and I looked at the Hunger Games from Lou's um, perspective, I was struck by two things. First, the fact that she um, was um, truly the Mockingjay and the catalyst for all the action that happened in the series. If Katniss had not met Rue when she met her in the story, then we wouldn't have had the revolution of Panem. So much would not have happened. And when you slow down the text and you're reading line by line, maybe, you know, um, taking a more um, structuralist stance toward the text, um, a lot of things are revealed. I really admire that first book much more than I did when I, you know, enjoyed it as a reader. I mean, it's really well, well constructed, very thoughtful, and um, imbued with a lot of U.S. symbolism. So, you know, about who we are as a nation, how our race relations are constructed. I thought it was very um, uh, uh, well done, but definitely Rue is uh, marked by spectacle when you first find, you know, you, um, when you first um, see her in the narrative, Katniss likens her to a bird and an animal uh, many different times. And, you know, sometimes you, you know, there are two ways of looking at that. And some, you know, you read through it and it's like, it's not in a caricaturizing or a, a um, overtly racist way that she does it, but you know, Oh, okay. So little black girl, the only one here. And she's like, you know, there's this burden animal imagery associated with her at first. So that spectacle um, does make you hesitate. She, um, of course, violently dies. I don't think that's a spoiler. The book is more than 10 years old, but she does die. And she's not the character. Um, she violently dies, but she definitely haunts the narrative because um, there's so much of that Mockingjay imagery that Katniss takes on later that is associated with Rue. Um, as a character. And several of my colleagues got, you know, um, um, sort of uh, cottoned on to that uh, before my book came out. And I hope I cited everyone. Um, I also show that the fandom was noting that. So that's Rue. Um, and, uh, you know, she just a beautiful little dark bird girl who's innocent. And so I do talk about Robin Bernstein's theory of racial innocence um, in that chapter and the impossibility of a little precious black girl being innocent, you know, in a lot of readers' imaginations. So they, um, there were children and teens who read the book and imagined her to be white. And then when they saw Amanda Stenberg cast as the actress for Rue um, in the adaptation, they were quite dismayed and they let people know it through itch incredibly racist tweets and Tumblr posts. And we've seen that that's an old song retold in the social media age. But I do think Rue was an important case of tracing that cycle through from text to screen and then looking at audience reaction, some audience reaction as captured in fandom. Yeah, I, I remember that controversy when the film was first cast, as you said, and when it was coming to be a major release. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to take you to next Gwen um, for Guinevere um, in Merlin. Yes, I loved Gwen and wish I had watched the show while it was originally airing. It didn't do 
so well in the United States. And I think that that is also evidence of my dark fantastic cycle. So there is a reason why <laughs> in Britain you could cast a black woman or a mixed race woman of some African ancestry as Gwen. And here in the United States, people just, all audiences just, especially during that time, I think they tried to air it in what, 09, 10, early Obama. I think so. Yeah. I mean, people just 10 years ago, maybe today there will be lots of discussion on Twitter and um, Instagram and Facebook about it. But that was in the very early years of the um, broadcast social media age. And people just, you know, their, 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 their brains just fell apart. Like the, the Lagos in our heads just fell apart. Like how can she's a black woman and she's a servant, but she's also queen Guinevere. And uh, so it didn't, <laughs> the show I think lasted a season, maybe two here. I think just a season on eight. I think I only saw a season yeah, of it. I think it was just a season. Well, it ran for the six seasons um, in England, which made sense. It was their version of Smallville. So Superman is emblematic of the American mythic cycle. So Superman is a quintessential United States hero, although he's from Krypton. Same thing with King Arthur. You know, it's a much, you know, Great Britain is, um, uh, well, Great Britain's not a much older country. England is a much older country. Um, and so... You know, they decided they were going to Smallville. Julian Murphy, the fe- uh, the creator and showrunner of Merlin, said, we're going to Smallville, the um, matter of Britain, the Arthurian legends. And I think it's pretty cool. So you have them as teenagers and young adults. Merlin is young, so it's a young Merlin narrative. I love wizards. Um, I think all professors, you know, we have a, a tad bit of wizard in us or witch in us. You know, so we're, you know, like it's fun to see the powerful wizard as in youth instead of in their glory, usually in elderhood, you know, you you become as an elder. And so um, Gwen began as a servant. So there were a lot of changes made because she was black. And I mean, people would say, oh, no, that's not it. No, if she were, if they had cast a white actress, they probably would have taken her through a princess stage. They eliminated the princess stage completely. So Arthur doesn't meet Gwen as a princess. He meets her as a servant. And so you have this black woman serving in, you know, this sort of, um, you know, sub-Roman Britain context. And, um, okay, she's a servant. He falls in love with her. Um, And then the hesitation, I, you know, as you saw in the book, even the characters mark that moment of hesitation during the episode where they fall in love. They break the fourth wall and they say, I doubt anyone would believe it when they, you know, when they're, so they're winking and nodding to the audience. And I thought, mm-hmm, yeah, but you know, and then I thought when I first went to um, write that chapter, Lily, I thought I had, I thought I had disproven my own cycle, which is something that I don't know, weirdly I set out to do, you know, you want to, poke holes in your argument as a defensive mechanism so your colleagues you know before they get to him and so I thought I was like well she doesn't die I remember watching it and she doesn't die and then I went back and watched it frame by frame and looked at the transcripts and I was like oh crap it's social death and so I traced the ways in which her narrative diverged from the Guinevere narrative and most of the varied retellings of um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. I mean, they got rid of the affair and still managed to make Gwen be the villain in really interesting ways. And then she's isolated at the end of the narrative in ways that she tr- um, isn't in the sort of the post, um, I'm going to pronounce his name. So the French cycle. So, you know, there's the original Welsh uh, Breton uh, myth, you know, that we think 
Arthur came from. And then there was the French, you know, we know the French was with the Guinevere and Lancelot. So anyway, so, you know, and then she haunts the narrative. So she's socially violence from Morgana. She socially dies. And then she, you know, um, maybe I stretched it a little when I said she haunts, but you know, I mean, she was standing in the way of the great romance of the series, which was Merlin and Arthur. So of course. (laughs) Um, and so you have, you have also a television show, a different television show, Vampire Diaries with Bonnie Bennett. Oh, the curious case of Bonnie Bennett. So masterfully played by Kat Graham. I mean, Bonnie, the two black girls in television, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, that if you talk to blurred girls and women, across sexual orientation and gender expression, there are two who broke our heart. The first, everybody knows we were heartbroken by Abby Mills and Sleepy Hollow. I mean, we have not, we probably will never stop talking about what happened to Abby Mills and Sleepy Hollow. And then the other definitely is Bonnie Bennett for people who watch the show. Um, So much so that all the fangirls I quoted read and commented on multiple drafts of that chapter. Like everybody I said, I sent the chapter around. They're like, yes, finally, you're telling our perspective. Because, you know, we watched this show for eight seasons and we just watched this showrunner completely refuse to tell the story of Bonnie in any way except for mammification. So she was completely, you know, uh, (laughs) she was like a well-dressed, beautiful suburban uh, horror version, vampire narrative version of a mammy figure. She only existed to caretake the white characters, like for eight seasons, and she um, she actually dies. <laughs> but you know, and then I said the the thing that always gets audiences laughing, and I'm kind of giggling now, is because I always tell audiences on the road. I said, you know, in a vampire story, all the characters are dead or die. So you know, you have the sexy guy vampires, especially teen, you know, it's this metaphor for, you know, um, coming of age sexually or, you know, learning to desire. So you have these sexy, forbidden, you know, ooh, hot boy vampires. And then you have the girls who, you know, are drawn into the romance and of course become vampires, you know, because, you know, what are you doing if he doesn't fight you? And you then you would vampire, right? And so they cast Bonnie as always raining on their parade when she was like, these guys are evil. You know, they cast her in that role. So she's the killjoy. And then on a show where almost everybody is dead, when she dies, they give her a funeral episode. It was the most hilarious thing ever. So it's a show about, like everybody, people are dying left and right, being resurrected as vampires. And then we pause and we remember Bonnie. And we just, and I was just like, oh my God. So they are underscoring that the black girl has to die. Now, of course she does come back and haunt the narrative, but just, I mean, there was just a lack of care and attention paid to her narrative throughout in ways that if you care anything about, you know, mirrors on screen, we talk about the mirrors, windows, and doors of children's stories that comes from the work of Dr. Rudin Sims Bishop uh, um, at Ohio State. So for those of us who saw Bonnie as a mirror at first, just like Abby Mills of Sleepy Hollow for adults, she was just the huge bait and switch. Um, Yeah, there were just so many ways that 
they epic failed um, in in that. And sorry, I know I haven't negatively evaluated the first two stories, but as a fan girl, that was one fandom I was in. And as an ACA fan of that material, I just thought it wasn't done as well as it could have been done with just a little bit of imagination. The imagination, but exactly, it's in, in the imagination gap. But it's also it's also that you know the people who are consuming have a sense of of the characters themselves and when creators or writers sort of drop the ball which happens um we all are kind of like why why did you do that didn't you get what you just created for the last seven seasons well i think that you know the differences in audience reactions show something pretty disturbing because you know you had if you looked at not just the teen girls we know that ya um books and fandoms encompass um not only teen girls, but women in their 20s and 30s are in, in those spaces, too. And, you know, there was a lot of fandom um, debate about Bonnie because people were fans of Elena and Caroline didn't see what the problem was. And, you know, um, Bonnie did exist to serve. And by the way, we really don't like her. And sometimes they couldn't articulate why. So very often in my work, I find that when people say that characters of color just across the board are unlikable or unrelatable, they're using that as a stand-in for not really being able to articulate their discomfort with um, that decentering, that sense of being decentered in the narrative because, yeah, so that's what I think it is, you know, because I, I, I never found it useful to just go through like 10 years ago, you know, people were like, well, it's because, you know, when I talked to friends and close colleagues about this problem, I was noticing, they said, well, Ed, they're just racist. But I've always been super dissatisfied with that as an explanation. Yeah, but why? Like, nobody is like, you don't enter this life with um, prejudices or negative feelings toward people. Of course, you know, I know much more now about structural inequality as a professor, but, you know, what makes people believe the things that they believe? What makes people feel the way that they feel, although they might not be able to articulate um, why why they're feeling that way. So that's why I think that, you know, um, Bonnie is unlikable. Well, yeah, because she's, you know, you're a teen girl or a 20 or 30 something year old um, viewer or reader. And, you know, you want to read the vampire romance and you have this black woman, you know, or a young woman, teenage girl, then young woman, shaking her finger like he's evil, you know, and because she's a witch, she represents, you know, witches are typically the antithesis of vampires in these stories, witches represent life and nature, they're connected to, you know, the natural order and vampires are an interruption of the natural order. So yeah, it's, it's also the monsters are inverted in vampire narratives. I talk about that too, where, you know, most of the time, you know, they're, they're white, And in ways that, you know, a lot of monsters aren't. Um, One of my Jewish colleagues talked about, you know, and I can, in a follow up, talked about how vampirism, you know, there are some other things, there are some ethnic and religious uh, things that maybe I could, you know, attend to or think about. You know, it's not just that the vampires are white, but yeah. So anyway, I'm rambling because this is a fun topic for me. So. And 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 you are you are clearly um, a a close observer of vampire diaries. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. um, and the final the final chapter is on Hermione. Yeah. 
and Harry Potter. Um, and J.K. Rowling is a little bit in hot water at the moment on Twitter. <laughs> I don't even want to like go there in the podcast because I'm like, whoa, lady, wow. <laughs> and, and that wasn't the topic of the chapter, so we don't have to take it up. Um, but you talk about sort of the Black Hermione. And so I, I wanted you to sort of discuss that a little bit because it's, a, it's again, a sort of reading that's available in Harry Potter, if not perhaps the most popular reading, Absolutely. as it were. Yes, I found that as a surprising reading, even as a Black reader who was um, in the fandom from almost the very beginning, because like I said, I'm a little older than <laughs> the Harry Potter target. So maybe about, you know, 10 years beyond that. So I first read Harry Potter when I was 21, 22. So I was, you know, a young adult teaching for the first time. And um, I over-identify with Hermione. I mean, I hadn't fallen in love with a character in a story um, uh, as deeply or as quickly um, since Anne Shirley, because she was a really brilliant and imaginative little girl who talked too much and people, you know, she was out of place in her town in Avonlea. And with Hermione, you know, being the, you know, the the smart girl trope was really interesting. There, I found her just a really richly written character. It would have never occurred to me to read her as Black. And I um, haven't done enough surveying of Generation X women who read the books. I think that something was happening in the millennial moment where I found it super fascinating when I saw online um, through fandom that a lot of... Um, young women who were in college at the time. And you're like, yeah, growing up, I read, you know, the books and I thought Hermione was black because of bushy hair. And then I saw Emma Watson and, and I thought, wow, what a, what a, you know, and I could have thought, you know, okay, what, where did you get that from? But I thought that was an incredible, um, agentive reading. And of course, some people have thought, yeah, that's right. And then other people I've heard a lot about, our restoring thesis. So um, along with my colleague here at Penn, Amy Storing-Aiolo, who's an expert in digital literacies and uh, writing and composing, we've been thinking about, well, how are young people doing more than clapping back to, uh, you know, canons and narratives? How are they, how are their readings um, indicative of agency? And um, she, um, you know, definitely I thought that the girls were, you know, it was something pretty radical to read yourself as like, not just to do something like a Black Orpheus or, you know, the Black Macbeth, you know, we've had those kinds of, you know, productions, you know, not by, you know, fifth graders usually, but just, it would have never occurred to me. I would have been the textbook child or teen to do that. And it just never occurred to me that that was a, a narrative possibility or a possibility as a reader to read myself into the middle of the narrative. And so um, in that chapter, I don't trace the dark fantastic cycle um, because in the books, I don't think that Rowling was intending Hermione to be black. She certainly does not have a dark, um, fantastic cycle narrative in the Potter book. So I would resist um, that as a reader. But what I wanted to do was that was just my, it was going to be my conclusion. So it's a little, um, you know, just about my own experiences being a black woman um, and a previous black girl reading these stories and encountering a generation behind me who were combating this sort of dark fantastic cycle by saying no i am at the center of the story 
you know, everything I read, I am reading from my perspective. And here I am, you know, I matter, I'm here. And I thought that was really powerful. Um, I close with Hamilton and, you know, thinking about what, the ways in which Lin-Manuel did that. I found it very creative. I found it potentially um, interesting activism, if not radicalism. And a lot of my radical friends that I respect, who respect me, we've had a lot of quibbles about that because they completely disagree that Hamilton, you know, like, yeah, it's celebrating U.S. empire. But sometimes I think, you know, even within, um, you know, an imperial construct or a construct that's not liberatory, you have to look at how everyday people are engaged in this sense-making and self-making that can in itself be liberatory, even if limited, you know, in in scope. Yeah, and if, if bounded by, you know, some of the historical context... Yes. And in the case of Hamilton, um, or again, you know, when, when Rowling comes out and says, well, that's not how I thought about that yes. character. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's how I'm oh, thinking yes, about the yes. character. As some, someone who wanted a different end game, I don't know why I got so invested. Yes, I do. I got invested in the ships. So the relationshiping and predicting which characters would end up together as adults, which, you know, in retrospect, is probably pretty uncomfortable because we first began reading the books, they were young, but they we knew they would grow up. You know, we've all read those narratives coming of age. And so I shipped a couple that did not happen. And um, we were sort of shamed for it back then. And so I was really happy when John Green, YA author John Green said, um, during a debate on Twitter, books belong to their readers, because ultimately, they really do, which is why I've tried to be open and, uh, you know, like really open to listening to folks who are challenging my ideas and theories because, hey, you put it out there and then, you know, um, it's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And I think that um, not just academic work um, operates that way. I think narrative in the digital age absolutely operates that way, uh, where you have these um, affinity groups and these transformative works being shared online um, with 100,000 people just from someone's desktop or laptop, uh, you know, it's such a different landscape. I think all of us are still observing and trying to make sense of what's going on and how um, reading and uh, consciousness and the imagination are being shaped as a result. Yeah, I, I mean, I found that whole discussion, which is threaded throughout your book in terms of, um, as you say, sort of the move from the page to the screen and, and, and then in the interaction between fans and readers and observers and, and that it's much more of a, a dialogue, as you say, as opposed to just the, the sort of a more static relationship. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, what is it that you're working on now that this beautiful book is out and you've done a little bit of a book tour and so on? Yes, thanks. Um, so um, in 2020, I will continue speaking about The Dark Fantastic. That's the wonderful thing about an academic book. Um, the shelf life is a little longer than my friends in the trade world. Um, and I have a young adult novel that has an agent. I am trying to complete some final revisions on it during the break. And um, it is very, 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 very <laughs> interesting. I've been trying to work on this book or tell this story for about two decades, which is why I think um, I wandered over to the academic side, because I feel as if that 
comes a little bit more naturally. But it's been really interesting um, trying to tell the story of two kids in Detroit who learn they have magical powers. This is an old tale retold, but I'm trying to weave in a lot of um, Black history and contemporary culture into the telling of it. Um, while doing some of the deconstruction work that I do in my academic work and make it palatable, uh, palatable to teens, which <laughs> has taken, <laughs> it's a very ambitious, ambitious project, but I'm nearly done and hopefully someone will take it and it may be the only um, fiction that I ever published. We'll see. Uh, well, I'm I'm looking forward to it because I will certainly get it for my daughter who loves a lot of these kind of fantastical stories. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I think the thing that's going to make it a little different um, is that um, it's Black American fantasy. And I have a boy and a girl as uh, my two protagonists. So it's, uh, you know, I wanted to, um, so much of the fantasy that we're seeing coming out now that is super, you know, good. I mean, um, at least Black fantasy, high fantasy is either um, West African, you know, maybe a specific West African culture or um, ethnicity um, based there, or it's sort of this amalgamation of Africa that I want to cover in my next book about um, Blackness and speculative fiction, because, you know, after Black Panther, um, my thinking was really revised around that. So originally the characters were um, not all African-American. The two protagonists were not both African-American. One was from the Caribbean, but I'm African-American. And so I did a lot of wrestling. I even talked to a good friend who's an author, award-winning author of that, uh, the culture I was writing in. She was encouraging me, I'll help you. But ultimately, I thought for a first novel, I would um, uh, just make that particular protagonist um, Black American with, you know, a family with hidden magical powers from from Detroit. But it does create a a unique conundrum. I guess the other thing I can plug is is an article that I have in The Lion and the Unicorn, which is a leading international children's literature criticism journal. Um, It's titled Notes Toward a Black Fantastic, um, Black Atlantic Flights Beyond Afrofuturism in Young Adult Literature. So what I'm doing is I'm wrestling with Um, a world building problem that uh, you have if you're coming from a culture that has been, um, you know, I don't like calling us broken, but enslavement did a specific thing to our culture, to our, um, you know, language, to the folklore that maybe we would have drawn upon to create stories for children and teens. We have our own folklores. Um, I have to plug um, Tristan Strong, Punches a Hole in the Sky, which is um, published under the Rick Riordan Presents line. So if you have kids, get that one for their kids. Because what he does, Kwame Mbalia did, was take the John Henry legend and Br'er Rabbit. So taking specifically Black American legends and making them sort of a pantheon that will battle the West African gods, like, you know, um, Anansi, who comes out of Ghana, um, and um, other West African gods. So it's just a completely interesting concept. But yeah, so I wrote a whole article, which I'm hoping will be the opening salvo to a follow-up book. (laughs) Well, I I hope you'll come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about the next book. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
I would love to talk to you about it some more about your work some more. So I'd like to thank Ebony Elizabeth Tom Thomas for joining me today to talk about the dark fantastic race and the imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games published by New York University Press in 2019. And this can be um, purchased, I believe, from New York University Press's website, I'm sure, and other places where you buy books. Yes. Thank you for joining me today, Ebony. Thanks so much for having me on and um, happy holidays and happy holidays. Uh, happy 2020, new decade. <laughs> exactly.